Well, it's good to see you all today. This morning, what um, I'd like to do, I'm in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, the first uh, five verses. We started it last week, and what I've done up here on the board is just summarize again, because we didn't get this finished, I know, but uh, the Apostle Paul is asking that they pray for him, that the word of the Lord, that is the gospel, may speed ahead and be honored, as it happened among you, that may be delivered from the wicked and evil men, for not all men have faith. So all Paul is doing in that verse is summarizing there are only two responses to the gospel. There are only two responses to the word of of, of God. And in this case, the gospel, because of how he puts it. You're going to reject it, or you're going to accept it. Now, he doesn't really say anything more about this. And so, uh, obviously, in in terms of any of the effects of the result, uh, I think that's obvious. But um, nonetheless, that's not what he's interested in, because of whom he's writing the book to, uh, Thessalonians. That little church has accepted it. And so what he's focusing on, then, are four intended results he has. Now, I want to say that again. To intended results he has because they've accepted it. And since he's an apostle and writing uh, under the authority of the, of the Spirit of God and so on, I would think we could conclude reasonably that these are the four results God would like to see in our lives. A confidence, an obedience, and I really should have made that separate, but a faith... Strong, deepening, growing faith, and a perseverance. So uh, there are four, but I just listed the two together. So what I'm doing here, and I hope that this makes sense, what I'm doing here is try to take these five verses and just organize them in the way he is really teaching it, okay? Because he says, you have accepted this. And he says, you have been delivered. And I'm so grateful for that. And then he says, because you are people of faith, you have accepted it, here are the intended results I have. Here are the things I would like to see develop in your life, and therefore God. Does that make sense? It, following that, that then gives some structure to what he's saying. All right? Now verse 3. So if you're with me, that's kind of where we were last week and where we left off. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Now you have a number of things that we can talk about there. One of the, I shouldn't say one, the result of accepting the gospel message is that the Lord establishes and the Lord guards that's not the results that depends on our obedience. This is what the Lord does. Establish and guard. Let's look at those two words. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. He will guard you. Um, first of all, establish you. That's such a... And that's a good translation. I mean, it's a good translation of that word. Uh establish, I'm not sure that communicates everything that I'd like it to communicate or that I think really uh, uh, Paul wants to communicate. Um, For someone to be established, what does that bring to mind? Someone to be well-established. 
They've been there a while. <laughs> okay. There's a foundation or something ah, secure. That's good. Something. There's a foundation. The, the New Living Translation um, translated as make you strong. Good. Okay. Make you strong. Foundation, make you strong, firm. Uh, if you go back to another uh, part of Paul's uh, writings in the book of Colossians, that your roots may go deeply into him. That's what he says in, in Colossians chapter 2. So what's, what's interesting, though, and, and this is what I'm trying to get you to really see, it is the Lord who's doing this. He will establish you. Let's think about this in another way. When we respond to the gospel in a positive way, we embrace it, we accept it, we pick up the gift. As, you know, you've heard me say this a dozen times or so. The Lord is not setting us up for failure. The Lord does not want us to fail. The Lord's intent, his goal, is that we're not going to fail. And so what Paul is saying, these are tremendous words of comfort that he will establish you. It is his intent that you will succeed, that you will grow, that you will mature, that you will be established. And the other side of that is he, guard, he will guard you against the evil one. Now, I, I would assume you know who that is, but throughout the New Testament, the evil one is referring to whom? Satan, Satan to the devil, to the serpent of old, to, to the one who has led the rebellion against God since eternity passed. And that word guard there is just as you can probably figure that out. It's a military term. But it's a, it's a term that uh, should generate the response uh, of safety and security and protection. Think about it from another angle. <clears throat> uh, I was just in another study I have on Wednesdays in the early morning hours. We were, we've been on, uh, in the book of, of Colossians now for a while. And uh, what, is, what is, is really interesting in that book is it's so short, and bang, pithy little comments that he makes. He says, among other things, that the cross, in other words, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his finished work, broke the power of the flesh in our lives, broke the power of Satan in our lives, broke the power of, of sin in our lives, broke the power of the devil in our lives. So none of those things can have authority over us unless we allow them to have authority over us. Do you follow what I'm saying? And so what Paul is saying here is that one of the consequences that God does when we accept the message of the gospel is he establishes us, he sets us on a path, a firm foundation. It, it, it there. We are building our life on the rock unless we choose to build it on the sand. But, and then the second is he guards us. He has broken the power of those things in our lives. We, before we put our faith in Christ, you can put it this way, we could not not sin. Pardon the double negative there. But once we put our faith in Christ, we now have the capacity and power to not sin. And so you have this, the, these, these words establish, guard these words of wonderful, comforting security. And that is the best place to be. It's part of being in Christ, which we've talked about many, many times. 
<clears throat> what what comes over to me, uh, and maybe you can deal with this a little bit, Jim, is <clears throat> he is. This is our spirit. We are spirit right. and body, and he is addressing the spirit, our inner being, and uh, who we really are. Uh, is is that? Correct. I don't want to put words, but I'm just asking. I'm, I'm curious why, why, and and I yeah, I'm, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but no. why are you only saying our spirit? Because that's that's what drives us. That goes through our decision making gear uh, uh, grid, and we filter that all in the light of His <clears> word <throat> and in the presence of His His living in our lives. And that's the that's the standard I think that we as Christians uh, reference as we make decisions in life, and um, so that's what I would say. That's how I would identify. Okay, I the the only reason I was pushing back just a little bit yeah, is good. in a way, uh, what you're really saying, Fred, or what you're really focusing on is our heart. Yeah. When you say spirit, because. Usually in the New Testament, spirit is referring to the immaterial part of us, our soul, our spirit, and our body is a material part of us. What you're really saying, and what I think you're really talking about, is is our heart, the center of our will, which yeah. does motivate, cause us to do what we do. And, and that, I think that is correct. But the consequence of that, then, is that uh, all that we are, both material and immaterial, body, soul, and spirit, are now beginning to walk in obedience with the Lord. I mean, it's a holistic approach to what our life is in God. My other question was, how, how do we uh, achieve that uh, in our, in our uh, everyday living? What does that look like playing out as we go about a day like today? How would that play out and how could that play out in our lives? when we're confronted with a situation we have to evaluate it in light of this word and who we are in Christ. What, what would be well, uh, Fred, that's such a broad question. Um, I'm not sure exactly how to respond to it, but I, uh, I mean, there are, there are several things that are just naturally a part of our walk with the Lord. One is the is just the, the strong sense and, and affirmation in our life of, of utter dependence on the Lord. So it's faith. I mean, it's faith and trust in him. And second, it's that that he is in control of my life and whatever is happening has first been filtered through a kind, loving God. Secondly, is that the, um, the responsibility as well as the privilege of, of praying to him and crying out to him and asking for wisdom, help me to be discerning, help me to know how to respond to this. I mean, it was, it was a very broad question, so I don't know if he had some specific things in no, mind. No, but then, then the final result of that is that faith and trust and dependence on him as we're crying out to him is the certainty he's going to respond and that he's going to, he's going to give us the discernment and wisdom that we need to make wise decisions. So, and I, I know I've referred to this many, many times, but Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, God... Paul writes there, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's your sanctification, your walk with him with fear and trembling because God is at work within you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Will, he is working in your heart. He's working in your will. He is enabling you to start to live your life in conformity with him and his purposes. And then to do is your actions, how you live. 
I mean, I, I just appeal to that verse constantly, uh, two verses actually, constantly in my life because that is my life now that I have put my faith in Christ since 1972. I want to be walking with the Lord in fear and trembling is that awesome, worshipful, reverential life of dependence on him because he is at work in both the will and to do my good pleasure. And as Woody's favorite word, that is a process that continues until the day we die. But Paul is telling these dear Thessalonian believers who are under intense persecution, you have responded to the gospel. And God is establishing you and guarding you from the evil one. He has no authority over your life unless you give it to him. That has been broken. He is no longer the master of your life. Jesus is the master of your life. Amen. And I mean, that he's just saying that in a declarative way. This is who you are. And then, so with that, that confidence that God is doing that, then he says, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Now, and I, I know you understand it that way. He is not saying, okay, I'm going to give you 17 rules you must obey. The command is what we've taught you, the things from the scriptures that we've taught you, that you will be obeying. And it's really not so much obeying Paul's it's obeying what the Lord has said through Paul as he's taught him, uh, uh, taught them. So, I mean, that, again, is one of, the, one of the intended results is that we will begin to live a life of obedience. And obedience is, uh, and that both intuitively you know that, intuitively I know that, but it's also clear in the scriptures. A path of obedience in your walk with the Lord is a path of freedom. And that, that to, in the 21st century, that sounds like an oxymoron. It's a contradictory sentence, but it isn't. It's not filled with contradictions. They complement one another. Now, let me say that again, that the life of obedience to the Lord is the life of freedom. Because to be free in Christ is to be free from the bondage to the flesh, bondage to the devil, bondage to the world. The power of sin has been broken in your life. And it only has power if you give into it. God gives us the power to begin to defy that authority in our lives. It was interesting. This it's just, it's just a perfect illustration of, of the human condition. And I just, I just smiled several times this morning as I thought about it. I was walking out. Of my 6:30, I have a, a group that meets at 6:30 in the morning, and uh, we were. Wa- I was walking out with a bunch of guys, and only one guy in my group, and it's true here, that none of you do. He, the only guy in my group that wears a suit, because nobody wears suits and ties anymore to work. I mean, it's just. I mean, there are a few, but he he works at a place where they. That's what they're. But he said, but we do have casual Fridays, and he said, now the problem with casual Fridays is. Everybody now is taking casual Fridays and just wearing whatever they want. And so now we're saying, well, we don't know if we want them to wear jeans. And if they wear jeans, we don't want to have holes in it. You see what happens? Human freedom unleashes a torrent. I will do whatever I want. And so then what does what does those in authority have to do? You have to reimpose some rules to present that freedom from becoming. And I just smiled at that. 
And so what's happened now in many businesses, and you all are evidence of that, it's casual Friday now all the days. It's just casual. You don't, I mean, there are many that still do, but you often now in a place of business, insurance offices, attorney's offices, well, many attorney's offices, they still wear suits and ties, but you just don't, and it, it's, it's just funny. Okay, with that freedom, then what do you do? Is it responsible, balanced freedom? No, it's like a teenager. You're always going to have several testing. What are the boundaries? What are the limits? Jesus says, come unto me, and I will give you rest. My burdens are light. My yoke is easy. John 8.32, come unto me, and if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And walking in obedience with Jesus, as my again, that same Bible study, Year, seven years ago or so, one of the guys said, oh, God paints the lines on the tennis court. And you've heard me say that. He understood that God's boundaries are not arbitrary. Therefore, are good. And obedience is loving obedience because I understand that's the path of freedom. And that's what Paul is really talking here, uh, talking to them about in this instruction. Uh, and it's more of a reminder. It's, it's not, it is instruction, but it's more of a reminder of who you are in Christ. And then he just concludes, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. Direct your hearts toward that. The love of God who cares for you, has your best interest at heart, wants, desires, and facilitates a relationship and steadfastness, that's perseverance. Faith, perseverance, that's the mark of the believer. All right, it's just uh, yeah, just really refreshing words. But are they refreshing to you this morning? <laughs> okay, Any anything you want to add? Or It's not difficult material. It's just a wonderful reminder of, of, of who we are. All right? To me, this is one of my favorite topics. Mm. I don't want to talk about political topics, but it's <laughs> one of my favorite political topics. Okay. Because I don't think that many of us that that defend freedom know what we're defending. And I was actually going to ask you if I could use that quote. I could quote you on that. Oh, heaven, oh. certainly. Life of obedience <laughs> Not a terrib- is a life of freedom. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think it is. And that's a, and that is, you know, I, those actual words may be sort of original with me, but it's a very sound New Testament principle. I mean, it's just, and that's the, that is the challenge that we have. We know that. I mean, I'm thinking now, kind of outside that, and certainly I'm not talking about politics here particularly, but when you're raising your children, and the children get into that disease called adolescence, you know they're going to always be testing the boundaries. That's just, that's a natural thing. And so, you know, it's how we then present, it's how we present that to our children. Are the standards of our family restrictive or really for your good? And this is not an original sentence with me at all, but rules without a relationship are lethal. But rules and standards with a relationship are freeing. That's how Jesus does it. Jesus establishes the relationship when we respond to what he's done for us in faith. The relationship is established. 
I'm doing a series at my church this uh, starting in July into August on God the Father. The lead pastor asked me to do that. And I, I mean, I just finished it this morning, as a matter of fact, uh, this series and uh, the outlines and all that because I wanted it before I left for Pennsylvania. Well, anyway, the, the reason I'm saying that is I've, I've been refreshed again in that thought of God as my Heavenly Father. And in many ways, that's one of the most um, dynamic aspects of the gospel. God is no longer my judge. He's my loving, caring father. That's a big difference. And that's what he's getting at here. That he's your loving, caring father. He doesn't want you to fail. he's, He's not setting you up for failure. He wants you to have the fulfilling, purpose driven, delightful life to which he's called you. And that I mean, you know, that can involve so many things. But the, po- the point is that our Father who is in heaven cares for us and loves us. And he will do everything. It's the basis for assurance. It's the basis for vitality it's, uh, in life. It's the, it's the basis for everything. Seeing God as our Heavenly Father. I just I love that thought. So anyway, all right. Now let's look at a passage which has been used for 120 years as a passage against any welfare system, ever. <laughs> now that was a political statement, sort of a joke, but it's because of that one little statement in verse 10. <laughs> but let's get the context. Okay, now here is probably what was going on. We know, and you know this from our study of both 1 Thessalonians and now we're nearing the end of 2 Thessalonians. They were confused because they were hearing false teaching about the end times, that the day of the Lord had already begun. Remember that? That's what they had heard. So, presumably, what had happened in the church was a, I'm assuming it's small, but a relatively small group of people said, if the day of the Lord has begun... That means I should just now be ready. So they, they stopped working, they sold what they had, and were up in the hills. And they're depending on the benevolence fund of the church to live. And Paul, in this paragraph, is addressing that. And he's giving, and it's very clear, and it's very categorical. If they don't work, they don't eat. You have no obligation to take care of them. Now that, I mean, you know, that, you don't hear that said too much today. But it's not talking about the welfare system of the state. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about a city's, um, you know, rescue mission support type program. Or it's not, it's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the church. And today in the 21st century, we call them like benevolence funds. Do you know what I mean when I use that phrase? As you're using your benevolence fund to, to help and support those people. They have believed false teaching. I've been correcting them that it's false teaching, but they still aren't working. Because they don't work. You have no obligation to help them. And that's one of the things about the scriptures. When you have something so blatantly being taken advantage of, and people are manipulating a system for their own selfish ends, 
you have every right to cut it off and say, no, we're not going to do this. So that's the background for this. So let's just look at the, 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 the paragraph is verse 6 through 12. Now we command you, brothers, sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, please, that's a very important phrase there. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he is saying there is with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, an opinion, is not an opinion. This is not a suggestion. This has the authority of Jesus behind it. You keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according to the tradition that you receive from us. I don't, some of your translations might have a little bit of a different word there for idleness, but I'm sure it's communicating exactly the same thing. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle, same word, I-D-L-E, when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we work day and night that we may not be a burden to any of you. I want to ask you a question. Why is Paul reminding them of all of that? Remember, he's down in Corinth. Thessalonica is way up in Macedonia. And he had been, he had been in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, the city. He had been there a number of months before. Why is he reminding them of this? I, I have a thought that he, he just doesn't want them to uh, think, well, the rapture's coming, and I, why don't I, what's the use of working? Why don't I just go up on the hill with those other people who wait for the rapture, you know? If we don't have that much time left, we'll probably be taken up to heaven soon. You know? And Paul is saying, is that the way I live my life? Is that we, is Paul saying this is the way I live my life? I'm joining the guys up in the hill. No, no, I'm busy working, and I would I would to such an extent I felt such an obligation that I didn't take from your benevolence fund. When I was ministering among you in your churches, I thought you know we know from Book of Acts he was a tent maker and so on, so he was doing his other work to support himself. He was, he was so careful about that, he didn't take support from them. So why is he telling that? I'm a model. Not, not to elevate himself, but I'm a model of how you should deal with this. I didn't even take care. Would Paul have had maybe a right to say, hey, could you guys help me a little bit? You know, I'm, I barely have enough to eat. Could you help me a little bit? He said, no, I didn't do that. I worked at night. I showed some tents. So that I had enough money to eat because I didn't want to be a burden to you. So he's not in a self-elevating or prideful manner. He's just saying, now listen, I taught you the end time stuff. But the end time stuff didn't cause me to go up in a hill and wait. I was busy. Because remember, and this echoes what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Be busy, be faithful, be ready. You're not lethargic, you're not idle, you're ready, but you're faithful. You're doing what God wants you to do. And if you're a farmer, it's a farmer. If you're an engineer, it's an engineer. You're a doctor, so whatever it is, you do what God's called you to do now. And so it's the authority of Jesus Christ, by the name and the Lord Jesus Christ, and by Paul's example, 
He is about to tell them what to do with these people. Are you with me? Do you understand what he's doing? It's, it's really, it's quite well structured. The authority of Jesus plus my example. He's, he's, uh, he's saying, I'm not teaching you anything that I don't do. Right. You know, I'm not going right. to ask you to do anything exactly. that I don't do myself. Exactly. And exactly. He's not elevated. That's right. That's right. It really is promoting self-responsibility, too. And, and, and I Absolutely. Not as a formula for getting into heaven, but a formula for getting along with one another. Right, and how to live. I mean, it's absolutely right. So he goes on in verse nine. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you and yourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command: if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now that's the context based on this end-time teaching and the response. But let's push that just a little bit further. It is an axiom, you an axiom is, don't you? It is an axiom of personal responsibility. And here is where and I, I want to be really careful here because I do not want to get into politics. But here is where I believe there is a principle. Whatever we are going to do as a church, as a local government, city, county, state, or as a national government, we should not be creating dependency. We should, be cre- we should be fostering personal responsibility. That's a biblical principle. To not foster dependency, but to foster personal responsibility. Do we have an obligation to help people in need? I believe as Christians we do. But in helping people in need, if our, if our un if an unintended consequence of helping people is we are creating dependency on us or on this system, instead of fostering personal responsibility, we will rue the day we created that. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it's just, it's, it's like a, it's, it's a common sense principle of life. If you are doing something, whatever it is you're doing, that is creating dependency on you and not fostering person or a program or a state or whatever it is, instead of cultivating personal responsibility, that is going to become something that ultimately becomes self-destructive. It's called enabling. It is. Well, and another word that we float around a lot now, an entitlement mentality. And that's, it's, we are, um, we are struggling as a civilization, and to some extent even as a church, but we are struggling with how to do this right. And by and large, we haven't done it very well. Certainly the state has not done it very well. And again, I don't, I really don't want to get into the political stuff of this, but it's a principle. And so the context of what Paul is teaching here is the context of what was going on in Thessalonica. But from that, we can draw a principle. Be very, very careful. Um, when Peggy and I were in Pennsylvania, we, the church we were serving in at that time, um, I think I told you that we were, 
uh, one of the number of things I did on Thursday night, I went into the prison, Lehigh County Prison. It was a county prison, so it wasn't major felons or anything. But um, you work with these guys, many of them we led to the Lord and so on, and then they get out. And a number of times I would give them some money. But there were a couple of times, and many of the times the, the guys would be, because I worked with only the men, I didn't work with any of the women, but many of the times the guys would be very responsible. But there were a number of times where they weren't very responsible. And I should have might as well just taken that 50 bucks and put a match to it, you know. But we felt the obligation that that was something we could do. But when the, if those guys didn't, and they came back for another 50 bucks, there's no way they're going to get it. Just no way. And just we just established that as a clear clear standard, because one of the aspects of the human condition is you you always manipulate the system. The Roman Empire found that they started giving people free bread and the wild animal shows to bring peace in the urban areas. What happened is they created dependency in the urban population on free bread and the wild animal shows. By the time Marcus Aurelius is the Caesar, there were 159 holidays in the Roman Empire. Where those days there was free bread and there was the wild animal shows. And, I mean, all the stuff that went on in the like arena. Pardon me? That's like three a week. Well, I know. I mean, you, just, you, think about, you think about that. And all that is paid for at the expenses of the empire. Now, what I'm saying there is that's a... That is an absolutely counterproductive system. And what Rome was trying to do was keep the peace in the urban areas. What they did is it created enormous dependency and it drained the treasury. And it's one of the six or seven reasons why the Roman Empire fell apart. They couldn't keep doing that. And so it's, why do you do that? Well, the state of Rome was doing it for the wrong reason. And then the people responded by manipulating the system for the wrong reasons. What do you have? Two wrong reasons producing chaos. For the most part, we try to do things for the right reason. But if we don't hold people accountable, we will find manipulating the system, using it for their own benefit, and we don't achieve the goal we have at all. So Paul is really on to something here. It's a principle. You see it in the Proverbs. You see it like in Proverbs 24. He says, Solomon says, watch the ant. Learn from the ant. How does the ant work? That's, it's not a ridiculous proverb, but it's not. The proverb, the ant is diligent. The ant saves for the future because he knows winners is coming. And if you're not going to do that, and you don't have any food for winter, who's to blame? That's what Solomon is saying. All right, now that's enough of that. Any questions? I don't think it's hard to figure out what. So I want to be careful that we don't say we should never help anybody because of verse 10. That, I don't think that's a corollary. But if we help people, there's a genuine, genuine obligation to help people in need. But how you help people in need and how you're going to hold them accountable or how, you're going, how long you're going to do it. I mean, all of those things are just reasonable things to ask. And it's really hard. All right. There's no discussion on that, so I guess we'll move on.
Verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. We believe he coined that term. But, I mean, in English, you know what a busybody is. Okay, you don't know what a busybody is? So what's he saying? What is he saying? They're busy bodies. Instead of being busy, they're busy bodies. They're using their idleness for, you know, for purposes of gossip, sharing stories that many of which are not true, and that consequence is that is it shows division, shows division and discord in the church. So that's not good. So you see, an unintended consequence of helping people in need can be you're creating a bunch of busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Be responsible. All right. Are there any final thoughts? Because we're almost done with Second Thessalonians. I don't get to say that very often. We're almost done. I mean, you know, to be done with a book in this class is an amazing accomplishment. So he concludes, <clears throat> he concludes, uh, as for you brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Isn't that a great, that's a command, but isn't that great? Do not grow weary in doing good. You can grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them. That he may be ashamed, do not regard him as an enemy, though. Warn him as a brother. That's, okay, let's think about that for a minute. Like the person up in the hills, the idle person, etc. Paul's saying, don't have anything to do with them, but warn him as a brother. What does that mean? Don't have anything to do with him, but warn him as a brother. What, what does that mean? All right, if we use that specific example of work, good. What, uh, somebody, I heard somebody else say something too. Um, oh, yes, please. Confront them. Confront them. Yeah. In other words, warn him as a brother. We're taking action here. It's an action word. We warn them. We say to them, what you're doing or how you're living or whatever it is, I don't. I love you. You're a brother in Christ. You're part of the family. What can I do to help you to deal with this? But it's, it's going to affect your relationship. And some suggest have nothing to do with him. That's that is within the body. Um, maybe he shouldn't be involved in the church, shouldn't be taking communion. Because you have the obligation, but James says it this way at the very end of his epistle, James chapter 5. Those who wonder, you who are spiritual, help bring them back. But be careful when you do that, that you don't get drawn into it as well. So it's this balance. May, call them to accountability, but be willing to warn them, to confront them. That's what Matthew 18 is all about, what Jesus says. You see your brother in sin? You go to him. 
And if that doesn't work, take a couple other guys with you. Help them to see the seriousness of what they're doing. It's our responsibility. So that all takes from way back in Genesis. Am I my brother's keeper in the church? Yes, I am. <laughs> Jim, did you think some of these people were sincere in being on that hill? Uh, that would listen to uh, redress and instruction? I don't know if, if we have enough information to really definitively answer that. But it certainly seems as if um, some or all or whatever, at least some of them, are taking advantage of this situation for very uh, selfish ends. It, I mean, it's just the way he's talking about this. Yeah. It sounds like my language a little bit earlier was they're really manipulating the system for themselves. Uh, that's a 21st century way to put it. But in a way, and I think that's why he's saying some pretty harsh things. So it would seem that maybe there's a there's some mixing of some theological teaching. It's in itself was wrong with some real personal selfish ends here. I'm gonna. This is good. This is a good. This is a good arrangement for me. I'm gonna really take advantage of this. <laughs> I got a church that has a great benevolence fund, and I believe this false teaching. So I'm gonna trust them to support me. And for a while, apparently, the church was doing that. But Paul's drawing a line and saying, stop it. Warn them. Confront them. And Jesus said, he doesn't say it here, but Jesus says, if that doesn't work, you shake the feet off your sandals. Or shake the dust off your sandals. No, anyway. All right. I'm not going to go through the last uh, two verses of, of Second Thessalonians. Now you are authorities on the book of Second Thessalonians, Right? <laughs> chapter 4 there is no chapter 4 <laughs>